Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding. I'm a project manager and research affiliate at the Indian Ocean World Center at McGill University. For this podcast, I'm thrilled to be joined by Professor James Beattie. Professor Beattie is an Associate Professor of Science and Society at the Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. He specializes in environmental history, garden history and history of science, as well as health history. He's particularly fascinated by the exchange of scientific health and environmental ideas, especially between Asia and Australasia, as well as the collection of Chinese art objects in New Zealand. He's author and editor of numerous titles, including Eco-Cultural Networks and the British Empire, New Views on Environmental History, which he co-edited with Edward Melillo and Emily O'Gorman, and was published in 2015 with Bloomsbury. In this podcast, we'll be discussing a more recent co-edited volume, as well as a chapter within it. The book is entitled Migrant Ecologies, Environmental Histories of the Pacific World. Migrant Ecologies was co-edited by Professor Beattie, Ryan Tucker-Jones, and Edward Melillo, and was published earlier this year with University of Hawaii Press. The chapter by Professor Beattie is entitled Chinese Resource Frontiers, Environmental Change and Entrepreneurship in the South Pacific, 1790s to 1920s. Additionally, towards the end of this podcast, we will discuss the International Review of Environmental History, an open access journal dedicated to environmental history that is published by Australia National University Press and for which Professor Beattie is Editor-in-Chief. Professor Beattie, thank you so much for agreeing to record this podcast with us. Thank you, Philip. It's lovely, lovely to be here. I just want to start with a very open question about migrant ecologies. What was the motivation behind writing and editing this book? How did the collaboration between the three co-editors come about? And how did the project develop from those initial stages into what it eventually became? Sure. Great, great question. Well, I guess there were several reasons behind how this book um, developed some academic, some serendipitous, and um, others besides, besides the point, such as a global pandemic. I guess we started with the basis that we all knew the, each other's work and we, we respected uh, each other as as people and, and historians. And as you'd mentioned, I'd already worked with Ted on a co-edited volume and we'd also written a, a couple of papers together too, while Ryan and I had um, taught together and also presented and arranged and organized uh, various uh, symposium panels um, at different points in time. So for me, it was a great chance to work with, with Ryan as well in a, in a sort of larger academic project. And each of us two brought particular strengths to the topic. Um, Ryan, obviously through his expertise in the Pacific and specifically through his earlier work on Russian whaling and more recently on indigenous and European whaling in the Pacific. While Ted also examined, you know, Chile, Californian connections, as well as broader commodity histories, um, also to do with whaling. Um, as for me, you know, my focus is on Australasian-Indian connections as well as sort of Chinese migrants. So I suppose we brought um, different strengths to this project as well as expertise in, in different periods and different geographical um, areas. So that was a strength to start with. The fact that we all got on really well was another important consideration um, and that shouldn't be overlooked either. And I guess we, we all came to it from uh, a conversation that we'd had We'd all study Pacific environmental history, um, some in greater depth than others during our undergraduate and graduate years. And we found that when we were preparing our courses, we were going back to the same sources that we'd used um, when we first studied some 20 or um, more years ago. 
And in particular, we all discovered we we went back to again and again John McNeil's excellent survey of the Pacific that was published in I think 1994. It was of rats and men, a synoptic history of the island Pacific. I think that was the title. So we felt it was time to build on that work and the great scholarship that had been done in the intervening years, you know, in the environmental history, like David Igler, uh, Judy Bennett, Greg Cushman, Paul Darcy, Francis Steele, uh, Mike Stevens, and so on. We wanted to, I guess, reflect these scholarly changes in a an accessible format. So we felt that the best way to do that was, was an edited book, which brought together a lot of different voices, which we would never be able to um, bring together, even as, as sole authors, even the three of us working together. And that, I guess, was a sort of primary motivation to make this broad and expanding field accessible to an undergraduate audience and yours, also your mythical um, lay reader. So I think it began in around about the early 2010s. And by 2015, Ted had organized um, a symposium at Amherst College where he teaches and works. And I think there were about eight to 10 of us turned up there. So this sort of provided an initial starting point where we workshopped ideas, we explored um, avenues of research, and indeed, you know, we asked the question, did we want a multi-authored book or was a better perspective an edited collection? So we figured it was an edited collection. So in the intervening years, Ted invited and badgered a number of other contributors so that now the book has about 15 chapters each of around about 5,000 words or slightly more each. So the idea was to make something accessible for you know, a variety of students. So that's, I guess, the sort of the genealogy of the, the book's development. And I should, sorry, before I mention that, I should also give a shout out to um, Masako and Hawaii University Press for supporting the project, you know, right from the get-go. Um, so despite the trials and tribulations and delays, thanks to COVID, you know, they still supported the book and um, it was published earlier this year as you mentioned. Yeah, one of the real features of the book is accessibility. And you're right, the relatively short chapters really, really facilitates that. Uh, in your introduction, I think you point out a lot of lessons and most of, the, most of our audience will be um, familiar more with the Indian Ocean world rather than the Pacific world. But the introduction itself points to a number of themes, um, which I think scholars of the Indian Ocean world could um, take on board and reflect on further. And in the introduction itself, you refer to um, a tension between, quote, global forces and indigenous ways of acting, valuing and knowing. And I think this seems incredibly important, not just in the environmental history of the Pacific Ocean, which you're focusing on, but across many regions of the global south, including the Indian Ocean world. Thus, could you just kind of explain for audience what you see this tension as being? Um, and also, are there any broader lessons that you learned in the creation of this volume that um, scholars may take away and um, build on moving forwards? Thanks. Thanks, Philip. That's an, an excellent question. Um, and I guess at a fundamental level, um, it's a question, a broader question about what we as historians do and what we in particular as environmental historians do, that tension between the local and the global, how do you situate your story into these broader patterns? I mean, it enables you to see its significance, whether it's unusual or otherwise, why its timing might be delayed, 
and also what the sort of environmental dimensions of, of these tensions between the global and the, the local are. And I guess, I mean, there are advantages and disadvantages, obviously, of an edited collection. Um, one of the advantages that which others see possibly as a disadvantage is that there's a sort of multiplicity of voices. And we were careful as editors to ensure that that those different perspectives were still there, but also we very tightly edited it to um, move it around the concept of migrant ecologies. So I guess the beauty of the edited book is that you can ask comparative questions about very different places in the Pacific, even if you didn't intend to to do that as, as an individual author. These come out, um, obviously, in the, the way that these particular um, chapters are juxtaposed with one another. We can ask things like, how did migrant ecologies impact different places in different ways? Uh, what factors explain the differential impacts of colonialism and the environmental change in one place as opposed to another? So I'll give you some concrete examples in the way in which that sort of tension could operate. That's probably easier to do it. So for example, um, my co-editor Ted's chapter examined the introduction of coffee beans from Brazil into Hawaii. And in that process, it demonstrated the crucial role played by Hawaiian, Japanese, and others in introducing coffee plantations into that group. So it's a sort of pretty complex story. It, it Obviously, it's a global story, the introduction spread of coffee bean monocultures around the world. But the particular case study tells you a lot about, at that time at least, local power dynamics and um, the particular implications of coffee bean agriculture on um, local labor supplies, environmental impacts, and so on. But equally in the same chapter, we've we've got one by Elilio uh, Solomon, who demonstrates the detrimental environmental effects of residential development on Oahu, uh, you know, the main island in um, Hawaii, and its erasure of indigenous knowledge and names. And it's a process that he manages to piece together through this careful archival research. Um, and he uses it to recover a more holistic indigenous concept and processes that, as he sees it, can help connect land and sea and avoid some of these problems. So he uses the past to recreate it, but also to create somehow a new future. And that's a very different story to the coffee bean agriculture of, of a similar period. Um, likewise, Hannah Cutting Jones's chapter examines how you know the Cook Islanders managed to resist European and colonial attempts to transform traditional land tenure and to introduce uh, different commercially valuable crops. And what, one of the interesting things as a sort of historian of, of empire, at least that's what I used to teach at the University of Waikato, is that a focused edited collection also allows fascinating parallels to be drawn with different environmental um, types, but also different um, geopolitical centers. So the contribution from Katsuya Hirano, for example, focuses on the process of Japanese colonization in the north, you know, and the Aino resistance there, but also reveals the centrality of justification for this using the concept of terra nullius, which of course the British had used to displace indigenous Austra Australians on the, in the continent of Australia. And again, you know, you've got a series of kind of case studies of different um, empires, you've got the German Empire, the British Empire at different points in time, the Qing Empire, and also, you know, the Japanese and American empires. So I guess to me, that's one of the strengths 
of of the volume but possibly also its weaknesses you know you can pick these different themes and and follow them in different chapters that's wonderful and i think the fact that you've referred to chapters uh in your answer to that question that kind of begs the question where does your chapter fit in and so your chapter chinese resource frontiers environmental change and entrepreneurship in the south pacific how does this fit into the broader volume how, how does it help us uh, understand more about migrant ecologies in the pacific ocean Sure, that's good. Good question. I guess, I suppose, in a sense, it attempts to retell quite a well-known story. That is the impact on the Pacific Islands and peoples and resources of China's massive resource demand, which led, um, you know, Americans and and Europeans, New Englanders, and and so on, to try and look to resources of the Pacific to try and pay for these uh, luxury goods that were being imported in um, large volumes from China. So that's part of it to try and retell the story. But secondly, it's also to um, look at the role of Chinese migrants themselves, especially from the mid 19th century onwards as agents of environmental change to remove this sort of concept even now amongst students that Chinese were somehow these, these faceless workers, you know, the attempt to give them the name, a name, give them um, a history and to give them also a degree of environmental agency. So I guess it's a sort of a, a perspective looking at the Pacific from possibly my idea was looking at the uh, Pacific from their ideas and perspectives of, of the Cantonese migrants who came there. Um, and also I confess too, I was, I'm thinking of writing a book on the Cantonese and the Pacific and environmental change. It was a useful um, arena to test my ideas, a safe arena. So if my chapter got rejected, I knew that perhaps I was barking up the wrong tree. And I think that's a really interesting contribution in terms of the kind of challenging the, the facelessness of or the, the stereotypical facelessness of um, Chinese yeah, migrants. Mm. Yeah. And one of the interesting parts of your, your, of your chapter is that you use biography. Uh, mm. As a way of, I think, challenging that, and I didn't. I think I don't think I thought about it in these terms when, and you're writing in biography. By biography, um, so it's the biography that of um, Chu Chong, and this I think is an incredibly interesting methodological approach for environmental history. Um, I think environmental history is often accused, fairly or unfairly, um, of um, not accounting for individuals or for the human, sometimes overlooking them, overgoing for the big picture, the big transformations and often obscuring the human. And I think you've gone against this trend. And I suppose I really want to know more about how, how did you decide to focus on this particular individual and um, what patterns does his life typify and what are the opportunities or limitations of those of this focus on the human or on a particular human for the practice of environmental history? Yeah, it's interesting. While I was writing this chapter, I was also working on another chapter with an old friend of mine, um, Eugene Anderson, the historical anthropologist. And this was for the Oxford History of World Empire. And we were basically doing an overview of environmental change and the rise of empire since the year dot to now. So so in part, it may well have been a reaction to this, you know, um, to the need to construct a very broad sweeping narrative with this other other project. But I think also the aim of doing this was twofold. Firstly, as historians, I like to sort of see the broad picture, economic, social, cultural, um, in a long span of time, but also, and we can, we capture individuals through statistics, through group, um, classifying them into groups and the like, but it's also important 
to hear the voices, um, to put um, flesh on the bones of the people that we're talking about. And this was certainly the case um, with Chu Chong. And I, I chose him for several reasons. I think, firstly, um, because there was, I managed to find a reasonable amount of uh, primary source material on him. Secondly, because he confounds the stereotype of the typical Chinese migrant as um, a, a an indentured labourer. Thirdly, it demonstrates quite neatly his rootedness within um, a Pacific country, in this this case, New Zealand. And the image obviously is of uh, Chinese as, as rootless sojourners, always w willing to return um, to China. And that's certainly true to a certain extent, but it doesn't explain people like Chu Chong or the, his descendants and others who um, still remain in the countries that they came to 150, 160 years ago. You asked about the typicality of Chu Chong. Well, he exemplified many of the patterns of other wealthy and influential Chinese merchants in Australia and New Zealand. Firstly, Chu Chong was able to graft, I suppose, colonial structures along alongside Chinese markets and approaches. Secondly, he was able to move seamlessly between cultures. He was bilingual. He also married a European. Many others did too. Third, I suppose, in a sense, were the opportunities that he faced. So unlike many other of the white so-called white settler lands, other than for a short period during the Second World War, aliens, including Chinese um, and other Asian groups, were, were allowed to, to purchase land. So um, he also made extensive um, connections with um, the local European community who backed his ventures. And this was typical of others. For example, the uh, merchants down in Dunedin, Choi Su Hoi, um, developed basically the, the second major gold boom in New Zealand through dredging, through these industrial industrialized factories that floated and scooped up gravel and processed gold. And he relied on that by dint of European investors. So it's an interesting story at, at this time because it was the height of legislative racism. And it was in part to try and explore for my own interests how someone like Chu Chong was able to navigate these um, difficult times in which he in which he lived. So I guess, does that sort of encapsulate um, an answer to your question? No, absolutely, it does. And one of the things that it, it complicates, I think, with a lot of assumptions, certainly that I had about um, this history, and one of the other um, things it complicates is seeing, I suppose, European and American traders as kind of dominating this region, uh, but also dominating Chinese commercial activities during the long 19th century. And you can kind of do so by showing the vitality of oceanic trade from Canton, partly through the biography um, of Chu Chong. And I suppose then kind of the question that arises from this, how did... Um, Chinese migrant ecologies in the Pacific differ or are they similar to those of the Americans and Europeans? Um, and I suppose then the other question kind of stemming from that is, do they re represent a form of colonialism? Um, or do you, do you see problems with employing such a term? Does it iron out too many of the differences between the supposedly different forms of migrant ecology? Well, I mean, it, that's, that's, that's a very good question. And I, I grapple with this in an article I wrote oh, a few years ago, and I presented it in various places, and it received um, a pretty hostile reception in one case because I think 
the individuals there um, didn't want to see Chinese people associated with colonialism. That was something that only white powers or the Japanese did, not them. Um, to answer your, your broader question, in a sense, American and European migrant ecologies, you know, they tapped into these existing intra-Asian trade networks and they overlapped, obviously. So it was basically, the you know, if we're talking about, say, the late 1700s, it was a sort of Johnny and Joanna come latelys of the sort of New Englanders and the Europeans who are tapping into these already existing, really vibrant um, coastal and uh, coastal trading networks in Southeast Asia and along the China coast. Um, so if we're talking about the period later, when you get Chinese migrants uh, coming into the Pacific following the gold, in many cases, they were using the same networks, um, the, the same opportunities. They were engaging in the wholesale commodification of nature for profit. So it's a sort of definitely the same form of, of capitalism, but with some differences. So Chu Chong, for example, starts an early enterprise, which is basically um, obtaining uh, an edible tree fungus from settlers in local Māori, paying for it and then arranging it to be shipped and dried to Canton, where it's sold. So this obviously relies on European and Māori labour, which he paid for, and, but also Chinese markets and knowledge of these markets. Later on, he invests the profits that he makes from this enterprise into um, developing in South Taranaki, where he lived, the dairy industry. And this dairy industry was wholly reliant on by and large, on, on European labour and European capital, and he sold these products to Australian and New Zealanders. And it was aimed specifically at um, a, a European market, if you like, at a settler market. And he labelled, you know, he called his butter Jubilee after Queen Victoria's Jubilee and, you know, so on and such like. And there was little at all evidence that it was manufactured and owned by, you know, a naturalised uh, Chinese businessman. And that story is sort of not unique in this period too. In other respects, the networks are different. Um, for example, there was, a, there was a Cantonese mail order nursery firm in New Zealand that was open for about 50 years or more, very commercially successful. It employed Chinese and Europeans on the commercial gardens, you know, massive glass houses, but it also owned a large um, plant nursery in Canton from which it obtained its seeds. So often they were making use of the same, you know, banking systems, the same legal networks and frameworks to sue each other, to buy land, to obtain miners' rights, but also grafting onto it um, their own sort of cultural experiences. Um, one classic example, I suppose, is in the construction of waterworks, where, you know, for millennia, Chinese had been manipulating the landscape and seascape or and estuaries of you know the Pearl River Delta. And they brought those um skills with them to Australia and New Zealand, where they were highly praised by private Europeans as as well as um officials who would employ them to build these uh, water races for in in some cases tens upon tens of kilometers to bring water into an area or to get rid of um unwanted mining wastes. So I guess it's a sort of a mixture of these two different elements. Hmm. And I'm going to want to ask you one, one, one final hmm. question related to, to your chapter. Because obviously we've discussed now mostly um, um, contacts between and differences between Chinese and European migrants in the Pacific. 
And I wondered what kind of contacts may be between Chinese newcomers and indigenous populations as well. And you referred to a couple of connections in the, your previous answer. But for example, is race, which looms so large in 19th century Euro-American and colonial imaginations, is that a useful category in analyzing the Chinese Pacific as well? Or I suppose are yeah. there different dynamics going on here? I mean, I've sort of hinted that already. I mean, I guess when I was sort of talking about the merchants, I was I had in my back in the back of my mind David Canadine's book on what was it called ornamentalism, which was which was arguing that you know class was also an important determinant of empire, not simply race, but race was certainly a vital determinant in understanding the experiences of Chinese, the way they were treated from the you know, in terms of the introduction, especially from the late 19th century, uh, of a series of racial ex racially exclusionary policies that specifically targeted and tried to prevent further Chinese migration. So race is absolutely vital to understanding the experiences of the, on, on the Chinese and state racism too. But equally, I believe that as, a, as the example I gave of Chu Chong hopefully illustrates one must also examine the issue of agency of individuals within such asymmetries of power. So certainly for um, the experiences of Chinese, say, that I've read about, it depended on um, particular circumstances. If you had a, say, if though I went to a mining area, it depended on whether the, the justice, uh, the magistrate there was pro or anti-Chinese, how the constabulary acted, and also what the general tenor of the local newspaper were. And, and in some cases, it was, there was appalling racism and discrimination, but in other, in other cases, um, quite warm and cordial relations. I mean, the fact that uh, miners on the gold fields would usually perform um, at, at New Year celebrations and at Christmas, you know, in, as instrumentalists in parts of Otago, or equally that they made the largest contributions to the local hospital suggests that there is a some degree of community um, existing between Europeans and Chinese and other groups. And how? What about in terms of relationship between Chinese populations and indigenous populations as well? Oh, yeah, the, with the further dynamic. Of, yeah, in terms of Chinese and indigenous relationships, um, that depended really on the area that you're talking about. For example, in um, I'll give you the one example from New Zealand. In northern uh, New Zealand, just below Auckland, there were a number of Chinese uh, market gardeners there who would employ um, Māori women to work the, the, the garden in the gardens there. And they um, often intermarried and, and developed, you know, family, you know, multi-ethnic um, families. And indeed, you know, one of my good, good friends um, descends from the marriage between... Um, Naitahu, so the local um, tribe and uh, Cantonese migrant. So it's more common, I suppose, at least in New Zealand, in the northern parts of, of New Zealand, um, when we're talking about, um, you know, earlier on, you know, in the late 19th century onwards. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much for that. Um, one of the things I also hinted at, I wanted to talk, this, want to ask you about um, in your in the introduction is that you are the editor-in-chief of the International Review of Environmental History, which is an open access journal, which for our listeners, it's, no, it's open access, but also doesn't charge um, author processing charges. 
um, is indexed on the directory of open access journals and it's dedicated to environmental history. Um, it was founded in 2015 and since 2017 has published two issues per year. To my mind, it is a wonderful resource and journal. And I'm going to quickly give me a plug as well. I recently published in it as well, so I, of course I yeah. would say that. Um, but for those who are listening who don't know about this journal, um, could you give a sense of the of the International Review of Environmental History's origins and the kinds of papers you're interested in receiving for consideration and how you see the journal developing in the future? Because I said, yeah, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful journal and uh, I really enjoyed reading the articles in it. Well, thank, thanks, Philip, and, and that was a lovely contribution by you. <laughs> no, I guess the origins lie well over a decade ago when I was talking with Brett Bennett and Greg Barton when we were talking about um, developing a journal such as this. And at that time, Greg was working at the Australian National University, and we received you know, a great deal of support from the senior scholars there, like the environmental historians Tom Griffiths and Libby Robin. Once sort of Greg left ANU, Brett and I continued to work on on the proposal and you know develop the ambit of the journal as well as an editorial board. And to its credit, ANU accepted it. So I've been editor for about I think nine years now, um, along with um, having Brett, Emily O'Gorman, Ruth Morgan, and Andrea Gaynor as associate editors. The way we conceived it was very much a, a sort of a broad church. We aimed to sort of take an editor interdisciplinary and global approach, and also to um, really focus on the so-called global south, you know, including but not, not limited to, you know, Oceania, Asia, Africa, and South America. That's not to say we don't have articles from scholars or on topics related to Europe. We, we certainly do. But the idea was really to try and prioritize um, those groups of, of scholars who might not be able to publish in some of the other journals, which required quite um, heavy um, subscriptions in order to get there. So obviously interdisciplinary, but we really focus, we want things sort of ideally framed within um, environmental history. So we've accepted papers on everything from garden history and landscape studies, ecology, and so on. So yeah, that's just a little bit by way of background. Um, and I mean, the journal seems to be really fulfilling its ambit. We've got over 128,000 downloads at last count, you know, a few months ago. And we receive, or I'm receiving you know, submissions every, sometimes every week um, from all, all around the world, which is really, really good. But one of the challenges that we're actually now facing is the need to find funding of around about 5,000 New Zealand dollars, I don't know, 3,000 US dollars a year to keep the journal going. So the ANU puts in a lot of money and effort, you know, with its professional editing and publishing and what have you. But we use that, we need that sort of funding uh, for copy editing and formatting. I'm looking at different options at the moment, but I mean, if anyone's interested in coming on as a um, as a sponsor for the journal, as it were, then please do get in touch. Yes, please do. Um, finally, I want to ask the final question, which I ask all of our guests on our podcast. Um, what are you working on now? Uh, you've hinted at uh, a book project possibly in the, in the works, um, but what can we expect to see, read or hear about from you uh, in the relatively near future? Okay. Thanks for the question. Well, one of them is nothing to do with the environment in a sense. It's a, I was lucky enough to work as a writer on a, a feature-length documentary film on the sort of 
the post the Cold War period, looking at the peace movement and um, particular individuals' engagement with Asia and especially China, and using the arts of China to try and promote better understandings about countries and peoples which um, they didn't um, uh, know much about. So that's called Building Bridges, Bill Yoren's Vision of Peace. And it's been in, I think, five or six North American uh, film festivals already, which is which is quite cool. And I've also got a, a nearly completed book, which is an environmental history of the last 10,000 years of a region in Aotearoa, New Zealand, written by a couple of friends of mine, an ecologist, Bruce Clarkson, and a GIS expert, Robert Crookbane. So there'll be some really amazing illustrations, hopefully, to come out of that. And I guess it's an attempt, and again, I suppose, a, a reaction to that really big project on global empires. It's an attempt to understand environmental impacts and interactions of different peoples, you know, Pacific, Māori, and others across 10,000 years of history in this one little region, you know, how it's connected globally um, over that period too. I've also nearly finished a book on Chinese environmental history in the Pacific, which has become, thanks to COVID, rather more focused on New Zealand than I would have wanted to, but I've only got a couple more chapters to go with that. And I'm also hoping to complete a short book on the environmental history of, of global empires and expansion on that other project. So if there's anyone out uh, they include in yourself, Philip, who wants to write um, the sort of 20th, what happens in the 20th century to global empires, then then do, do let me know. So yeah, that, that's some of the several other projects I've, I've got on the uh, stovetop. Wonderful. Maybe I'll talk to you uh, about that after, after recording. Uh, yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah. wonderful. Thank you so much for discussing your research, um, your edited volume, uh, your chapter, um, and your journal. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, I also want to thank um, Sandley Riemann for organizing and producing the podcast. Uh, and of course, I want to thank you, the listener, for streaming or downloading. Um, once again, my name is Philip Gooding, and this has been the Indian Ocean World podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership of Praising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. 